Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we examine the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Jasmine Westendorf, a lecturer here at La Trobe's Politics and International Relations Program. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Manakshi Gopinath, who is the founder and honorary director of WISCOMP, which stands for Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace, as well as one of India's most well-known educationists and the former principal of Lady Shriram College in Delhi, India. Welcome. Thank you, Jasmine. I'm very interested in the work of WISCOMP, especially this year, as it's the 15th anniversary of the United Nations Security Council Resolution on Women, Peace and Security. And so there's been a lot of buzz around the idea of women's roles in peace processes and also a lot of disappointment, I think, in terms of why, despite all of the efforts of the last 15 years, women still seem so excluded from many processes of conflict management, security building and peace. Why, from your perspective, is it important for women to be included in these processes and what is it that you're doing to support their active participation? Well, let me start with uh, when WISCOMP was set up. And WISCOMP is an acronym for Women in Security, Conflict Management and Peace, but it also fuses wisdom and compassion together. So that's a happy acronym to work with. We were set up in 1999 a year before the uh, 1325 resolution was was actually adopted by the UN Security Council. And it's a matter of tremendous synchronicity that in the late 90s already, there were people from across the globe who were working on issues of women, peace and security. Um, you had, of course, uh, the famous theoreticians of the Western world and Tickner, Cynthia Enloe, mm. who talked about the fact that international politics saw women was really not making sense anymore because the nature of the state had changed, the nature of warfare had changed, mm. the nature of conflict had changed. So when we uh, began our work in 1999, it was really an initiative for Asian women to find voice in the hitherto untenanted space of security mm. and to enable and facilitate their leadership in uh, multi-track diplomacy, in peace processes and so on. Of course, it is now a truism that women who hold up half the sky are not included uh, formally at the negotiation tables that broker peace. And therefore, you leave out literally 50% of the solution. Mm. But my contention is that it's more than just that. It is also about justice because conflicts, as you know, impact women and children, mostly non-combatants, in very violent and different ways than they do impact men and combatants. And therefore, to leave out their concerns and their solutions to the amelioration of violent conflict would be not just uh, short-sighted, but it would be also looking at it from a justice lens, a kind of exclusion, which is violent, which is in a mm. sense the violence of exclusion, mm. which is a structural cause of conflict in mm. and, and of itself. You talked about 1325. The positive aspect is that now there is a normative global instrument that allows women to articulate uh, the necessity and the imperative 
which is recognized across the world for women's inclusion in peace processes. But I think the three P's of participation, power, and protection, we've stayed largely within the protection end of the spectrum. The power and participation aspect, which 1325 envisaged, is still not foregrounded enough whether it's South Asia, whether it's Southeast Asia, in the conflicts across the globe. And women's voices need to nuance and enrich that debate. You yourself have recognized that in your work that it's not really about adding women and stirring. It's about looking at gender relations, which impacts both men and women in different ways. It's about interrogating masculinities and certain types of masculinities, which sometimes, shall I say, reinforce the cultures of militarism across societies. Mm. So that's where we began. And while there are, I think, about 55 countries that have accepted the national action plans. I think Japan was the latest to sign in. India still has not developed an NAP because from the perspective of the leadership, we don't have conflicts in India. And so the recognition of 1325 in that sense would be to recognize that we have intrastate conflicts, Mm -hmm. which is such a short-sighted sort of approach both to uh, internal security and also diplomacy and foreign policy. However, what women's groups have done, I'd say very effectively, is that because India is a signatory to CEDAW, they have invoked the General Resolution 30, uh, which talks about the rights of women in conflict and the protection and participation of women in not just DDR issues, but a also in peace-building processes, they have actually invoked GR30 to try and exhort the governments to adopt some of the principles Mm. uh, that are integral to 1325. Mm. You've been to Nepal, and in the last, I'd say, 10 years in Nepal, the women have become extremely, shall I say, savvy about the language of 1325. Mm. Now, whether that has impacted the patriarchies of, family, community, and the state is yet to be seen. Mm. But they do have a new vocabulary. And I feel that women have a very important role in redefining the holy cow of national security Mm. and look primarily through the lens of people security, which for countries of the global south would involve issues of human security. You know, access to livelihoods, to water, to food, all of these which have been the perennial security concerns of people. So it strikes me that there's an interesting gap there as well. Even though there is a growing movement at the civil society level, and particularly with the women's groups who are using the language that's been developed at the international level to support their own demands for greater participation and inclusion, there seems to be a lack of willingness from the national leaderships in many countries, um, not just in South Asia, but since you spoke about India and Nepal as well, I think there seems to be a reluctance to actually allow women to participate because many people don't actually see that these non-traditional security concerns should be on the table. And they also don't necessarily believe that women have a valuable additional role to play at the table. Do you think that's the case, for instance, in India, in the government's resistance to the idea of developing a national action plan? 
Well, national security is still very male-dominated. And it's also very much Westphalian and sort of state and military-centric. There are alternative voices. They are beginning very gradually, I would say, to find their way at seminars and so on where security is discussed. From the last session on the last day uh, on any security uh, discussion, gender issues have moved perhaps to the second day. Mm. Uh, we look forward to <laughs> to actually opening sessions on security with gender. But gender is a cross-cutting issue across all security and development debates. And I think the very interesting confluence that we have in 2015 of the Beijing Plus 20 and also the Sustainable Development Goals debate has breached the conventional division between the soft and hard development versus security kind of matrix and has brought development now, at least in the global consciousness, to sit somewhere squarely within the security debate itself. Here, women have to pry open spaces for themselves. Mm -hmm. it, it really means, you know, women can't wait to be invited. And it needs disobedient women to do that. And a lot of uh, the new writings on international politics and peace building and alternative security um, vocabularies have been put together by these disobedient women who are really breaking the earlier bastions and questioning glass ceilings. Can you give us an example of these disobedient women? <laughs> well, there are many in India. I just wanted to share with you that many of the movements both expand democracy and include other notions of security are led by women in India. So if you go back, say if you go to the ecofeminist movement, which is about food security, you have people like Vandana Shiva, whose work you know. If you look at the mobilization against large dams and displacement of large population in the name of development, you have Medha Patkar. You have women who led the opposition to missile sites in Balyapal or Kudam, Kudankulam. Uh, it was a woman who led the right to information uh, movement, which mm -hmm. make governments accountable for the money they spend and they are answerable to the public. So they have actually led many of these movements, uh, movements for democratic rights. And they see security as a matrix of freedom from want and freedom from fear. Therefore, it cuts across the democracy-security divide. These were supposed to be two separate domains, but they have brought them together in their agitations and their, their movements for change. So uh, there is a lot to be said for that kind of power. It's not always made visible. For example, in Nagaland, in the northeastern area of India, which has seen a lot of ethnic conflict, Women's uh, leadership has proved decisive under the Naga Mothers Associations to, shall I say, do no harm kind of policy, to look at both the security forces and the radicalized combatants to refrain from violence. So they have shed no blood day where they look at killings on both sides as equally bad and do not privilege uh, one set of roles mm -hmm. over the other. They've also managed to mediate between conflicts across warring ethnic groups. In Kashmir, I'd like to say that we, in our small way, Wiscomp, has looked at building dialogic spaces 
amongst women across fault lines mm-hmm. of region, religion, ethnicity, and so on and so forth. So there are many such examples. There are also you you know the iconic Iram Sharmila, who has undertaken a fast unto death to protest the rape and death of a young woman by the armed forces. So you are taking on. huge establishments but of course there's usually a pushback as well and that's something that women's groups and movements have to learn to take in their stride and build upon it's not just about the negotiation table per se but the voices around the negotiation table which comes in from civil society mm-hmm. that can inform both men and the few women at the negotiation table mm. to reflect the voices that are not always heard mm. so i see hope because without hope uh, really there's there's little point in our working mm. but as you said there is a gap between the top level leadership and people at the grassroots but it's theoreticians like you and and peace builders like you and where the universities the civil societies groups need to collaborate to find greater spaces for articulation of gender concerns so mm. that women who are hitherto on the margins find space and can provide you with alternative vocabularies now if you look at violent extremism which is something that we're all combating clearly the old methodologies are not working the nature of violence has changed the nature of states has changed the nature of uh militancy has changed so we need a different kind of an approach now it is my belief that perhaps women's movements having known marginalization having struggled with this one step forward and three step back and who have eschewed violence perhaps might come up with alternative ways which are non militaristic mm-hmm. to begin to look at this problem differently because we certainly need new spectacles we need new lenses bombing and so on is not working mm. the groups that are committed to violence internationally better networked have access to the most modern technology and above all they are willing to die the value for them of their own lives is also not crucial a completely different approach and vocabulary is needed Mm. and perhaps women do speak in a different voice and it's possible i always think to the mark twain quote that to a man with a hammer everything looks like a nail that's right in these sorts of discussions and i think what that's you're right. talking about is a really good example of how when when we think of security in a particular way we see only particular sorts of responses that don't necessarily capture the right. variety of the experiences and challenges and also opportunities right. um around these processes and education is a really central way of opening up the spaces for alternative ideas and approaches. Absolutely. What what is the work that you've been doing around education and how does that contribute to conflict well, transformation? Well, uh, we've had a, a series of training programs in Kashmir and in the northeast with schools and universities. And the idea is to look at pedagogy of peace building. I know this kind of sound, sounds like motherhood and apple pie but it isn't really because it's about changing the mindsets that sustain militaristic responses even to crises. It's long hard work. So it's about training of trainers. It's about 
looking at issues of identity. It's about looking at issues of masculinity. And above all, it's also looking at active coexistence, not just tolerating the other, but understanding the so-called enemy also has a face. Mm. So that's one. And the other thing that we've done over the last 12 years is an Indo-Pakistan future influentials workshop using different themes every year to bring young people in dialogue on issues that separate and divide us and to see if there are any connectors that can be found. These are not just women, these are men and women. And today we have a network of about 500 alumna. And interestingly, they are talking to each other through the internet, through Facebook. Mm -hmm. So there is an alternative epistemic community of potential peace builders that's out there. And I think much of this work is about investing in the long term. You're not going to see immediate dividends, but somewhere a seed would have been sown, which will sprout beautiful branches. I think that's a great point for us to leave it. We've unfortunately run out of time today. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on our iTunes or SoundCloud pages. Thank you for listening. Thank and you, thank Jasmine. you for being it's with us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.